0: There's no such thing as glass ceiling in architecture. What exists is a fat layer of white men. And I respect them. I like strong ideas. I like challenges and what I really like is to be challenged and then and come back with answers and then keep continue to challenge them. That's what I meant by I'm not subservient. I'm never going to listen to what they tell me. Voice your own opinions with your own set of thinking and your own set of values.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein and this is the Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years. And this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. In order to be a successful architect, you need vision, taste, lots of luck, and a sense of slow burn discipline that few other career choices require. And if you are a woman in the profession in, say, the 1980s, that's something else entirely. My guest today is one of the most influential and inspiring American names in the field, who brings a sensitive and careful eye to everything she touches while passing on her knowledge to the next generation as an educator of the highest degree, Toshiko Mori. Born in Kobe and raised in post-war Japan, Toshiko came to the U.S. to study at New York's Cooper Union. She started her own firm soon thereafter, and today her practice is known for such elegantly modern, for lack of a better word, which we'll get into, buildings such as a master plan for the Brooklyn Public Library, a hall for Brown University, a pavilion for the Brooklyn Museum, various galleries and exhibition designs, private homes, and notably the award-winning and influential visitor center for the Darwin D. Martin House in Buffalo, New York. As she once wrote in her monograph, "'Architecture is a noble profession, "'and ultimately it exists to improve the quality of life. "'Each opportunity we are given to build a project "'we take as a gift. "'In return, we engage each project with compassion, "'attempting to capture an ethereal vision "'that will carry it into the future.'" Ethereal is a great word to use when describing her work and impact, and key to that understanding is her teaching career. She steadily taught at her alma mater until joining the Harvard Graduate School of Design and became a tenured professor there in 1995. It's hard to believe, but she was the first female faculty member to become tenured at GSD at the time. She then became the department chair for six years in 2002. She's still teaching at Harvard today while running her own firm. Toshiko has won numerous awards, and her latest is the inaugural Philip Hanson Hiss Award from Architecture Sarasota, a nod to her work in Florida and her reputation as someone who knows the power of context in architecture. I caught up with Toshiko from her studio in New York to talk about her groundbreaking work for remote communities in Senegal, her earliest memories of life in Japan, her views on modernism, and what it's like to take a course under the watchful eye of Professor Mori. Well, thank you again so much for doing this. Uh, I'm I'm so honored to to speak with you, and you you have such an incredible career and an incredible you know body of work and. Uh, you know, I'm going to try to get as through as much as I can today, um, but I kind of wanted to start at the very beginning. Um, you know, you were raised in, in Kobe, Japan, but you moved to New York when you're about 14. So I'm kind of wondering what your your some of your earliest memories were of your childhood uh, in Japan in that period.
0: I think my childhood in Japan is I grew up uh, post World War II. So Japan was still occupied by American army. And the we lived across from a site where a family of compound friends of our neighbors donated part of their land and converted them into their housing. So from my garden in my yard, I could see them, the kids. And they were on the fence waving at us and I waved at the kids. So it's occupied time, but I saw it as American families, military life there. So the mothers are taking care of the kids. So it looked normal. So we didn't feel what you call a military pressure. but uh, And I really didn't think or knew that we were occupied. We learned much later
1: and I, because i read somewhere that you you had to farm vegetables on that land that you just described because there was like a, a sort of little bit of a shortage of food at the oh
0: time. yeah right post world war too, we we had to grow our vegetables we had our own chickens i was in charge of chicken coop and we had our own eggs so we had to supply a lot on our own there was a shortage of food and so the materials we there even if we wanted to we couldn't go by toys so everything was handmade by my mother or we made the toys and my childhood was hard to face with scarcity but thank goodness to my the wisdom and grace of my mother and grandmother I just never felt we are living in scarce economy we we thought this is the way it is we learned to conserve and also save everything and when I was I like to draw so they would save every wrapping paper available and straighten them out and I would draw on a back of wrapping paper my grandmother would save every single string and rubber band and everything is everything is very neatly uh, stored and just no waste including food we ate everything and very creative about figuring out but later I found out that most exquisite cuisine in Kyoto comes from that spirit because Kyoto, also, doesn't have a natural resources in the middle of a mountain, so they had to aestheticize what you consider to be scarce into an amazing food culture. So it seems to be that particular notion of aesthetics, uh, because we are, we grew up in western part of a country, and my aunt lived in Kyoto. So I think my grandmother was able to translate that aesthetic into the actual scarcity crisis and made something beautiful out of it.
1: Oh, wow, and what did your parents do? My, my mother is a housewife. My
0: father was in international trade. He would be in South America. He was in Buenos Aires for a long stretch of time. He would go back and forth to New York also. And at that time, I think Japan was able to work on scrap metal. So he was in charge of scrap metal, which is uh, waste from military, in the northeast, and then that will be reused or recycled into a new metal. And he would be buying scrap metal from elsewhere, and that's beginning of a large steel factory industry in Japan. So,
1: so you know, at that point, you you moved to New York when you were about fourteen. How did that How did that happen?
0: Well, because my father was transferred to New York, and he was in charge of North and South Americas, and based in New York, he could. Uh, actually, do work, go to all the places in South America, and then also all the Americas. So, we were, so
1: he was stationed in New York, so we moved. What was that culture shock like for you coming to New York at that time? I think my mom uh, immigrated to New York around 16, and you know, she would tell me how difficult it was and 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 her her experiences. But what was that like for you?
0: New York was great, and it was very exciting. We lived in Riverdale right on looking at Hudson River. So it has a oh, wow. very big impact. Uh, I would just see the, the cliff across as majestic nature. So my impression was really not looking at skyscraper till later, but this incredible majestic nature of Grand Hudson River and then the cliff. Then I really felt like America is more based upon nature than industrial civilization. That's my first expression. And Riverdale Mm. was very leafy, and I could walk to summer schools. And first I went to summer school at Fjostan, which is very progressive and liberal. It was too liberal. And I was going to go there. I was very much looking forward to it. But I think they put me into a girls' Catholic school. (laughs) Um,
1: And how did you find yourself going to the Cooper Union? And you mentioned you, you had a love of drawing. But at what point did that kind of connect to that school? after the Catholic school.
0: (laughs) Right. During the Catholic school, there's really no art classes, and I liked art, and I was not very happy. So, my father let me go to uh, summer school in Paris and Florence, and in Florence, I met this amazing teacher named Leonard Meiselman, who was a Cooper Union graduate, and he was a Cooper Union architecture graduate. But he was also teaching summer classes for American students in architectural history, art history, and architecture. and he would take us through the cities and museums, and it was eye-opening for me because we really figured out with him the relationship between painting, sculpture, and architecture in cities. And then, of course, the scientific renaissance and scientific innovation, discoveries, how it's related to arts, history. And I was absolutely fascinated by it, and, and then it was also drawing courses too. and. He recommended me to look at Cooper Union because he's a graduate. He introduced me to the dean there, and he said, "Why don't you go and see him?" And I went to see him and talk to him. And the Cooper Union, even yeah, to this day, they have their own exams, so you have to sit in a great hall and take exams.
1: And so, do you think you you kind of um, took to the culture there? Like, what was that experience like going to school there? Oh, it was! was it a fun I experience? I
0: loved it. I, so hmm. I first got into art school. And after one right. year of art school, um, I transferred to architecture school because I was just looking at architecture, but my background I, of knowing Florence and so forth, uh, I was always interested in it so, and transferred to architecture, so second year. So I ended up going to Cooper Union for six years and I loved every wow. moment of it. It, it was oh, so inspiring and, and art school. Dorie Ashton was a professor of modern history. It a, he, she would bring in amazing people. And engineering school, uh, physics, also physics were taught by Nobel Prize laureates. And then architecture school was run by John Haydock And at that time we had amazing professors, New York Five, Charles Grasmi, and then Richard Meyer was there. And then and later on, Bernard Chumi would come. And it, we just And Raymond Abraham, Peter Eisenman, like who I think I was in the best time, I think, with students, fellow students, also professors.
1: I was going to ask about uh, John Haydock because he was this legendary dean there. And I, I read that you had studied under him. And I was wondering if you could explain to people who who he was, you know, aside from just being a famous educator, like what do you think his his legacy was? on the impact of design and the students there?
0: So John Hinnock is an architect and also embraced all the other arts, literature, uh, painting, music, photography, and he really considered architecture as part of a major culture. So he would bring in poets and he would bring in artists to talk to us, and he would have artists teach us. And also his concerns, he wouldn't say it as a social, but it is very social. He's done series of projects on victims, and also he has this idea of society. It's kind of predicted a little bit, kind of sad and terrible state of society we see today. He's always had these concerns about future of the generations, and he's optimistic, but also Tragic. He more so as a personality. What made him an amazing educator? He had more of a spiritual aspect. He could actually read beyond what you're doing, and he's try to understand the depths of your motives. As a teacher, he's amazing. It's just not teaching, whatever in the books already, but he was trying to bring up what's unique about each of a student, and have a conversation individually about it, and because of it, he's incredibly well disciplined and very strict and demanding in terms of productivity. You are supposed to be producing all the time, focused on it, and then intensity of a discipline in which you really have to think about your project from all sorts of perspectives, and not in a prosaic way, but more poetic way and more
1: approach, personal approach. Was that approach? Let me ask you this: Was that approach at the time at, at the Cooper Union like a rare thing?
0: It, it was rare, rare thing, very rare thing. Because if you go to any other schools of architecture, it's it's more pragmatic and prosaic and present based. It's very dry. But this approach is very humanistic, and then personal, and it also asked us, what is your role in society? What is your role in culture? So we have to really think not only architecture as a profession, but who you are, what you become, what are you contributing to society at large? So one is made to think a lot. Before you draw a line, you have to think about all these things.
1: And and I heard that you you had worked for another architect, Edward Larrabee Barnes after school, right after school, right? Yes, yes. yeah. And and what what did you learn getting going into the corporate world and and going into to another architect studio outside of school for the first time? What was that like? Well, at that time, architects offices are more studios. I think Ed Barnes' office
0: was like a big family, and we had a studio which a section is doing different projects together. He would come around, and this is at the time when. Advance would be one to one with CEO. Like we are working on IBM, he would be just directly presenting and talking to Tom Watson Jr., for example, and all sorts of uh, director. Of museum would come in, and he would have uh, artists come in. Uh, so it wasn't corporate in atmosphere at all. We are all included in meetings, and then going to visits or presentations, and we felt like this was. Part of it, it's just it's it's uh let's say they have done corporate work, but it never felt corporate like it. It was a yeah, so it, it's very strange that way. Even though we were working skyscrapers on IBM Five Nine Madison Avenue, we were just working together as a team and going to the site and talking directly to our managers. So I don't know. It's very different than the offices from what you consider to be corporate offices with top management, middle management, people, div- division of tasks. It was more blurred then. So.
1: Oh, amazing. And I guess, you know, from that early foundation, uh, you know, to today, if someone asked you, and I know this is something that that comes up a lot. And it's I, I don't think you're someone that has likes to describe your work in specific ways or. Um, You have a specific aesthetic that you're always trying to push or anything like that, um, as probably most great architects don't. Um, If someone wanted to ask you about what makes one of your projects your projects or even from a process point of view or a way you think about it, how would you describe um, your work to a completely uninitiated person?
0: Well, I think I hate to impose. My style, but I also take amazing amount of joy by drawing essences of my client or the site, and I like to do a research. I've always been an academic because, well, while I was working at Ed Bond's office, John Heddock did invite me to come back and teach at Cooper Union, and then for I've always taught and practiced in parallel, like all the time. It just never stopped. So the research part of it is very important. And every client, every site, I do a research and I love to discover new things. My style is really drawing the essence of each project, each client to get in touch is really sensibility or aesthetics. That is very, how do I say, uh, it's not tangible, but it, you can sense it. You can really sense the space when you actually go deep into understanding of it and when you actually make a design out of that particular understanding, you end up a place where everybody thinks, oh, this feels like this place, this feels like this institution, or this place feels like somebody's home, which is very different from anyone else. And I I like that. So a lot of people would say that I there is certain basics I, my designs are usually more minimum and clean and precise but in terms of style i really don't have it i know how how i put it together is always there but it's very different from project to the project
1: so when you graduated from the cooper union what did you tell yourself that you your role in society was what were you trying to what did you think your next
0: I did not know because I, you know, you're so young and at the same time you want to do a lot of things and you make a lot of mistakes. So you're balancing, uh, between your curiosity, your desire and to learn and see a lot of things and against what you can do. So before I can find out what I can do, I really have to find out what's
1: out there. <laughs> so- Before we return to Toshiko Mori, a word from our sponsor, Anne Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Anne Sachs. The brand opened its Portland, Oregon factory 30 years ago, realizing a vision to produce the finest handcrafted tile showcasing modern, timeless design. Anne Sachs' latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs, a key element to the design of any kitchen, bathroom counter, shower surround, or if you're lucky, home bar. With the company's incredible experience as a foundation, Ansax is offering a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, stone mosaics, and accompanying slabs, as well as dimensional stones. And this September, the company will open its third slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. At these incredible one-stop destinations, you'll be able to work hand-in-hand with their design associates on everything surface-related. For more information about any Ansax tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www.ansax.com. And at what point did you switch from, from, you know, wanting to work for somebody else to having your own studio?
0: So I think when I turned 30, I had made a very arbitrary decision to go on my own. <laughs> so, uh, basically, if I if you don't do it, you'll never do it, do it. And I think I learned a lot from A's office. I thought that I just have to take a deep breath and then just hang
1: up the singles, as they say. <laughs> and some of your first projects were in, in sort of fashion retail. Who was your first kind of client, your first big client?
0: It was uh, Jerry's... Uh, Miss Stutz, who was uh, president of Henry Bendels at that time, on Fifty Seventh oh, Street. Okay, wow. So that, again, like that's the
1: biggest New York gig you can get at the time,
0: right? So I, yeah. I was like ignorant and fearless and i brought up my portfolio i made an appointment and made up and showed her my portfolio and my thesis was called places of transactions it's about history of market and started from greek agora and markets and romans and and then it goes into stock market venice as the center of a commerce started a credit business and things like that and then it's really about different prototype for markets and that's why i thought that she might be interested in idea because at that time, Henry Bendel was called Street of Market. She had the layout of a store is one street. It's like a classic marketplace, has different showcase of the, uh, new designers in it. And she commissioned me to do a new boutique within Henry De- Bendel's for the first shop of Comme des Garçons. So that's how, and that was my thesis really, thesis model. He said why don't you build it 160 square feet and this quarry work very well with this young designer label we are introducing so that's that's how it started
1: and that was the total introduction of Comme des Garçons in in New York i guess at the time.
0: right right first one and then oh, wow. the family called Weiser's walked by and they had a store called Sherry vary in new york okay and you are a baby, so it's, you won't remember. <laughs> it was like a really 80s and 90s, and Sherivari also introduced new Japanese-Belgian designers. They had a whole bunch of shops on west side and ended up one on east side also. So they commissioned to do a store on 79th of Martin, uh, Amsterdam, and then some on Madison Avenue and make systems, or display systems. And then from there, it led up to different boutiques on Madison Avenue.
1: So, you know, of course, you know, as a professor at Harvard, uh, you'll always be noted as the first female tenured member of the graduate school there, which happened in 95, um, which is not that long ago. And at the time, did you ever doubt that that was going to happen at the time? Did you ever think? you know, if you were the first uh, in that faculty back in 95, was it something where you kind of doubted that it could have happened or um, had, anything like that?
0: No, I, I had no idea. I found out much later I was the first female tenure faculty and also first colored BIPOC, member of a tenure faculty there. This is much later at that time. I think Harvard at that time, didn't care what what you are and in their own way, as long as you qualify, this is before any we are rare it's it's like they, they, I think I'm considered to be an accident <laughs> being a female I and mean, being color member at that time was very accidental. that's how somebody actually said that, and I said, okay, it's like but the whole recognition in they came, oh my God, it's much later, maybe even 10 years later, I didn't
1: think about it. How were you introduced to Harvard? How did that start?
0: Oh, Rafael Moneo invited me to teach, option oh, Studio. okay. And Raphael yeah. it's just, he says, I think, and he's very heavy Spanish, like, I think you have to come. You have to teach a studio. <laughs> when Rafael Moneo asks you something, you have to say, yes, you have to say, and I said, okay, I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So what do you like as a teacher?
0: I'm very strict. I'm very demanding and really organized and disciplined because and I think I tend to give students more assignments and more structured assignment because students I have, say, are capable of learning an enormous amount of materials. And the broader materials I give them, better they perform because it gives them wider horizon. And as you can imagine these days, I have students from all over the world and all sorts of different backgrounds, and they bring enormous amount of wealth to the classroom. So as a teacher, I have to really give a broader background material for them to be able to bring in. And the, but I always done that because my focus was on materials and exploration of material culture, which necessarily I have to bring in example from not only from Eurocentric examples and precedents known to us, but I have to do a research from Asia, especially Japan, South America, and Africa, rest of the world. It's material study is a world culture studies. And that's how I always conceived of it. And, and I also, also get comment that I'm a very strict teacher because I really give them a lot of uh, requirements and making sure I'm, I'm not very easy. I, I think I like to be with students and I like to promote what they bring. In what way? In, in a way, sometimes they may have to redo drawings or models because they come up with a stereotypical idea, what they learn from past, but somehow that's not their personality. So one has to invent a different ways of drawing or making models. Really, it, it, you'll be surprised how so many students are molded in a stereotypical way where they are ready to burst out. So my role as a teacher is to help them break the mold so they can actually be on their own. And, you know, educational system has challenges. And I I think the creativity, I think that's what I I do is promote creativity, innovative way of thinking, originality, only comes from breaking the given mold into finding his or her own
1: path. And you're, as someone who, You know, teaches these sort of like the best and the brightest, right? Um, How you know? How would you describe this upcoming next generation of architects? Like, how is this new generation unique?
0: They are great. They give me hope, and and they also very much want to contribute to the world and the community in a very direct way. They don't necessarily want to go. work for star architects anymore, and they want to discover humanistic values. And I think it's very, very important uh, this shift has happened. And a couple generations ago, the ambition was to become a next star architect. And do incredible buildings, incredible, beautiful commissions, win competitions. So those are the ambitions a couple of generations ago. Now, generation, because value system change. I don't think any of them think that way. Of course, they are always few <laughs> well, that think that way, but they think that going into community and also many of them are discovering a new mode of practice in terms of fi- founding their own nonprofit or collaborative work. Work with communities, they are finding much more different ways of working as an architect. And it only comes with confidence and the optimism of this generation. And also the mentality that they know as a crisis, if they don't do something different, working as usual will not solve equity, justice, or climate change, the major crisis we are facing today.
1: And when do you think that shift changed? Is there
0: it's been gradual it's been it's been very gradual and I've been teaching material seminar classes and I asked students to pick a material it's always been standard architectural materials glass metal wood yeah concrete stone the catalog materials but in the last couple of years the shift is that I think the last one I taught students all picked biological natural materials to see how the grass or even corn or sugarcane can convert into materials in the back of their mind. They know they are agricultural wastes and how that could be used, how the waste can be transformed into material architecture. So, so the way of thinking of the life cycle use of materials has changed a lot and also connection. Connection to nature, the resource, idea of where the resource is coming from and how the architecture is becoming some of the most wasteful industries and how do we prevent that? How do we go away from using steel or concrete? So that kind of thinking has been gradual, but five to 10 years, yes.
1: Before we return to Toshiko, a word from our partner, Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design driven products. outfit nearly every inch of the modern home, from its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the grand tourist is always shopping for his next remodel, or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. The Brera sofa system by Jean-Marie Massaud, named after the famed design district in central Milan, sets a new standard for universality. It has clear architectural lines without seeming harsh, and through its many clean-lined elements can be configured either rounded or straight. Best of all, its couture-like details on the upholstery, as well as leather details for the base and armrests, make it a tailored dream. Oh, and the cushion covers are removable too. For more information about the Brera and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. You were recently uh, given an award by Architecture Sarasota, the Philip Hansen Hiss Award. Congratulations. Um, I think I probably speak for most most people, unless you're a a real architecture buff, that I didn't know much about the modernist legacy um, uh, out there. And what can you tell me about it?
0: Well, um, Sarasota has always attracted uh, architects in 20th century including um, Paul Rudolph and Philip Hiss came from New York to be there and then he became a developer, he became a patron of architecture and became an amazing uh, place of, at that time, experimental architecture. And climate is very, very nice, mild and semi-tropical. So outdoor life is possible. So one can actually do type of architecture which connected inside and outside. And I think be- because of that, one can do buildings very quickly as experimental and they still remain. It just became an unusual community like Palm Springs is that way in West Coast. And so is uh, New Canaan, Connecticut, is also that example, and some parts of Cape in
1: Massachusetts are also encouraged. In parts of LA near Silver Lakes. So it was like a, an ex, an expression of modernism that wasn't desert modernism, and it wasn't New Canaan. New, you yeah, know, it was uh, Florida tropical kind of right, exactly a different thing. Yeah,
0: but uh, if you can see all the examples, they have really considered natural ventilation and orientation to the sun and shade. Uh, so the passive uh, solar is all considered. So it's, it becomes hot, but none of them have air conditioning, and it has a very ideal relationship to breeze and shade. So it's incre- incredibly ecologically considered.
1: Before it was cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, for them, it was common sense, and they are very beautiful. So, so it's actually light. Quality of light is beautiful and
1: it's right on the gulf. And speaking of this award and also from your experience teaching and your own work, I'm wondering if you could share for listeners what your own view on you know, mid-century modernism and modernism in, in architecture in general is as a force in architecture today, um, as I think people now bring a lot of baggage to that and have lots of different points of view. What do you think modernism means today in our, in the year 2023 in architecture? What are people misunderstanding about it? Or maybe they're not, I don't know.
0: Well, it's a style and it's a period of time and from late forties to fifties, sixties up until 70s, especially modernism in America is very different from more prescriptive modernism Bauhaus space from Europe. Uh, so when uh, Walter Gropius, Miss Van der Rohe, they all escaped Germany to come here to be educated as Walter Gropius at my school, Harvard GSD, and Miss Van der Rohe to uh, IIT. So And also including that uh, painter, but Joseph Albers and Annie Albers, uh, they have brought in ethos of Bauhaus, but then it's been Americanized in terms of uh, vernacular, but that's so interesting about it. You can see more in Cape, and so same in in Sarasota, of Spanish colonial. There's more fusion of culture in American modernism than in more purist version in Europe, and they have to do with uh, particular regions, particular climate, and it's something like, I think, when he did a house in Lincoln, Mass, and also houses in Cape. He does refer to New England vernacular as a basis of inspiration. And It's strange because I have this vernacular house in Maine, and I understand. It's very simple. Simplicity, clean plans. You won't believe it. How that relate to each other? And, of course, Spanish colonial ones has this ethos and then planning from European typology, so it's not as difficult. And so, yeah, and, and even Mies van der Rohe, when he came, he became friends with Frank Lloyd Wright, and uh, he would use the word organic architecture to transform his strict uh, Miesian aesthetics and styles from Germany when he transports into America. So there's this American modernism has subtleties, and connectivity to context more so than uh, European context. And I think that's the strength and interesting thing about it.
1: And is it is it something where, are, are people thinking of modernism as too much of a, of a rigid style that didn't adapt and that didn't kind of change and, and connect to different cultures?
0: What is interesting, it started as a rigid one and then international style. And you can actually Imagine it could be colonization of different cultures if it's taken, but then culture, some cultures resisted. Americans did, Japanese did in a big way, like a Tange Kenzo Tange. When Japanese modernism incredibly Japanese to a lot of extent, and so I think it's more interesting for me to see how different cultures and architects in different places able to adopt adapt it. And then evolutionalize it. I think that's more interesting as a process than actually taking a rigid paradigm of modernism, something that can be placed anywhere. And if you also see uh, Tel Aviv in Israel, they have adopted also to its own culture, to the white city. It's, it's very, again, tropical, but also in the light situation. I think it's highly, much more influential when I think it's been adopted to diverse
1: cultures. And speaking of the sort of cultural interchange uh, in, that occurs in architecture, two of your most regarded projects, uh, a school and a cultural center, um, are in sort of remote corners of Senegal. Uh, I'm not sure if they're close to each other yeah, they're, at all. Well, they, they even are.
0: close, but it's you have to uh. <laughs> drive and you have to stop, you have to wade through or cross the river and then go again. <laughs> it's,
1: okay, so it's relatively, relatively close. But not close really. yeah. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you do do describe to listeners uh what these projects are and 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 how you you came to work on these projects um all the way in Senegal?
0: So that kind of relates to modernism because it was uh from Joseph Nani Albers Foundation who commissioned me to do two projects. And Joseph and Nani Albers they were refugees from Nazi Germany, started in Black Mountain College and then later went to Yale University, he became a very influential teacher. And they decided to have a foundation in the seventies to benefit uh the places where they may not be receiving the benefits and since they're refugees, they're really looking at different places. And and I think uh, current president, Nicolas fox Weaver has uh, identified this area of Senegal where they had highest maternal mortality, highest infant mortality, where it was lacking Western medicine um, to introduce clinics there. And it started from doctors in Paris providing medications, and it's like 20 or 25 years they have been working in that community and stabilized, and I think built like eight clinics and maternal centers and kindergartens and farming schools. So they've been very, very active in in that area. Mm-hmm. And they invited me to be there. And Joseph Albers has this dictum uh, uh, maximum effect for Minimum means. So that's actually he was working with. And, and then they just focus on this area to, um, provide services as part of a foundation. And so that's the background of a client. And it does relate to, uh, modernist notion of democrat. It's the modernist really as a philosophy is idea of democratizing. Uh, architecture, arts, and then having everything accessible and inclusive. Those are idealistic mission of architecture, modernist, which I should have prefaced it before, instead of having it exclusive to wealthy communities. And the idea is ideally it could be affordable and then it could be replicated so that's actually has that idea i should have said that that why, why okay. modernism resonates with us and if it will continue beyond the style that's that's what it is so this is a basically essential modernist idea of to try to make medicine ac- accessible but senegal is about uh, 90% muslim so Resistance, but I think they were used to now and welcoming and then trusting uh, this foundation, Western medicine, and the first one with thread, which is cultural center, and thread is okay. attribute to Annie Albers, whose contribution is weaving, and she says if you come from anywhere, you can go everywhere. So, so this again is openness and providing opportunity. It's a cultural center and. A, It's a very, uh, Senegal is a progressive and liberal uh, community and women has many roles in it, but it's right next to Mali, some terrorist organizations there, Conservative Wind is coming in and we've been working with Dr. Mageba, who is the doctor of a clinic, main clinic. So he became a contractor, but also his vision is that we have to have this cultural center to preserve the culture of about 12 tribes they have different languages but they can share performance and arts together so that's has artist residents and they're inviting uh, artists from if even na- neighboring communities to international artists musicians filmmakers to work with the community and then they develop their artwork also and and then it's basically a community center. And after all these years, they I think one of the main uh, traits I have built into it is ability for the roof of thread to be able to collect rainwater during rain season. Because water shortage as a result of climate change is an issue, and this is where aquifer was abundant and there was no need of collecting rainwater, but now it's drying up. So girls and women are forced to go to remote places with uh, risking dangers of bandits and animals to collect water. So if one were able to collect water, in your own place, then the village life, and especially uh, lives of women and girls, can be stabilized and more safer. So we proposed this. It kind of collects about 30% of village need, and Dr. Magee did a very extensive survey a water use of community. About seven hundred people, what animals drink and so forth. But it's really an example because as opposed to Bermuda or Ethiopia, it doesn't have a architectural paradigm which collects rainwater. And now they have been using the systems to develop agriculture. And that's a woman's architectural collaborative develop as a result they're growing vegetables they're selling they're making money and as a public health their nutrition level has increased and they are growing ponio which is a very fine gluten-free <clears throat> type of couscous oh, wow.
1: well that must be feel very good to know that you're the idea you may have had in the office one day like let's have this roof collect some rainwater it actually can improve the health of uh, can can lead to better couscous and and to the health of a whole community right (laughs) and what's next for your studio where do you what's what's your next big project
0: um i think we continue to be working on master plan for brooklyn public library we just finished a phase one it's a very large project and we're working on phase two we are working on children's library and phase uh, three and fourth hopefully to be able to connect us to the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens and Brooklyn Museum, that area, so that that area, uh, East Parkway, becomes the Fifth Avenue of Brooklyn and become a cultural center. So that's a big ambition, but that's probably one of our largest projects we are undertaking at
1: the moment. And if I, as one of my last questions, if I asked uh, Toshiko Mori, what is good architecture?
0: When you think of good, what is moral, morally, ethically, aesthetically? So, the good is strangely judgmental, and sometimes I think what you consider to be bad is actually beneficial to the culture we live in because our culture is so bad to start out with. And the idea—it's architecture is very relative because we are all responding to the context, and we are responding to extreme polarization of opinions right now, and then where do we actually get in? So in a polarized culture, when you say what's good, and then you judge something else to be bad, but that's not the case. I think architecture is always in the gray zone in between good and bad, in between positive and negative, and try to negotiate different values in our societies. And so that means we kind of have to be accessible and then to be open and for interpretation for many different generations and more extreme opinions and the place where one can feel safe to be who you are. So we don't wanna be have architecture to just offer one value to one segment of society, and hopefully that's going to help it to have a longer life, because it has to evolve.
1: Thank you to Toshiko Mori, Oliver Babb, and Cultural Council for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.